Hey everyone, welcome to the Mike Roseheart Show. We're live and it is episode, I have no idea, but we're well over 100 and uh, today I'm trying to think of a, an episode topic and what I do before every single stream, as people know, is I take the time to reflect on whatever's going on in my life or whatever I want to talk about. And so today I think it's a good topic as we get towards the end of the year, typically in you know November, December, January, people tackle their financial plans, right? So financial planning could be a good topic for today. And I think it could be a good recurring segment for the show where people bring their, their financial plans or they bring the nuances of their financial plans to the show and I can answer whatever questions they have about, you know, how do I build a budget or, you know, I have this debt or that debt, what do I do with it? Or I'm trying to structure something should I put it in a corp? Should I not? And I might have an answer. I might not. I'm not a licensed financial planner and I'm not a licensed CA, CPA. So whatever I say, it's just my opinion. I haven't had the time to really think through research or give any due diligence of any sort to the answer or to pre-qualify the answer in any way. So it would just be off the top of my head, but we can use these types of conversations to think deeply about how we're going to structure our financial futures. And that's the most important thing because those with a plan tend to be much more successful in life than those without a plan, right? So people without a plan are basically planning to fail, right? So get yourself a financial plan, uh, even if it's just a, you know, a set of goals in a journal that you look at once a year, even if it's, maybe it's not a journal, maybe it's, you know, an Excel spreadsheet or, you know, a Google sheet or, or something where you write down a few, you know, financial goals and you check back in about how you're going to achieve those. And as long as you revisit that, that process is not only cathartic, but it's also very informative on your passive brain or the piece of your, your mind that's working while you're sleeping, the piece of your mind that's always thinking of a way to solve that puzzle. That piece should be working so that, you know, you can get further ahead financially and reach your goals. Hey, how you doing guys? Good to see you on. Shaylin, good to see you. Alex says, hey Mike, uh, do you think your knowledge would still have, do you think with your knowledge? Okay, I missed the whip. Do you think with your knowledge, would you still have invested in real estate or would you have gone with stocks? So that's a tough one. Um, you know, like the whole knowing what you know now, would you have done what you did is basically what you're, you're scratching at here, right? And I think, like I'm a finance grad by, you know, education, right? I graduated from the Richard Ivey School of Business. I have a business background that specialized in accounting and finance. So I had experience investing and analyzing companies. I had experience working in audit, right? So that's, that's sort of what I did was work in the financial industry, so to speak, right? And that was sort of what I was doing in consulting, the business consulting that I was doing too, allowed me to look into businesses and to be someone who was able to analyze things at a greater depth or a greater level of complexity. And so with that, no, I'm not a CA, CPA. I worked at KPMG, did a co-op, was working towards that. In my four-year degree, I had taken the things necessary. Actually, I had a job accepted at KPMG to go into audit and then into tax, actually, when I graduated. And I was, I guess, six months of my, I guess, what, 36 months is what you needed to be a CA. Now they call it CPA in Canada. They merged it. Um, so I was on the path to be CA, CPA, and then got a better job offer opportunity and figured I could spend the extra time that I would have spent during tax season and during busy season investing in real estate instead and make more. 
And the hope was that I would be net further ahead financially. And for me, this is me personally, I found the most, I guess, value from earning as much as possible and growing my financial future as, and financial base as much as possible in my early years. I figured I could always go back if, you know, if that, you know, that education of having that CPA was gonna be valuable, I could always go back and learn that and pick up a textbook or go online and read if that was something that was gonna benefit me. So I figured build a strong financial base. And so I took a job that allowed me the flexibility to focus on real estate part-time. I liked a job that would allow me to walk out at five o'clock and not have to stay late. Now, my job did allow me to do that, but to get promoted, I ended up in, in two of my uh, three years that I worked towards manager, and I got manager in consulting. Uh, I ended up staying late and I ended up working a little bit harder than I needed to. Like my job did not require me ever to work past five o'clock and I didn't have to work weekends. So I was technically able to focus on real estate. And when I needed to, I did. There was times where for several month periods, I didn't work overtime and I just focused on my real estate portfolio. And then come you know closer to the promotion season, I would go hard at my job and make sure that I did really well from a performance uh, appraisal or performance metric standpoint. And that's how I got promoted quickly and use that job and that performance and that, I guess, history to get the better uh, you know, mortgages and then to grow my real estate portfolio and eventually quit that job, right? The job was only necessary to quit the job. And so in hindsight, would I have changed? So when I was 19, I bought my first property. You guys know the story. People who have been following me know that I bought my first real estate um, when I was 19. And so my first rental property was just designed so I could live for free. It was called the house hack. And the idea was that I would take all of the, uh, you know, the rental income from the different rooms that I was gonna be renting out. And by the way, I bought this property as a two bedroom, converted it into a four bed, three bath, put a basement apartment in. I put in a lot of sweat equity, but, and didn't get a big payoff. My first deal, I think after renovation costs and everything, I made $5,000. That was my lift. So it was like 20 bucks an hour for all my time invested. It was actually a terrible return on investment, but a great learning opportunity for me on my first deal. And you gotta remember that when I bought my first property in early 2012 through till I, when I sold it in, I sold it in 2015. I have to double check. I think it was 2015 that I sold it. During that time, um, I learned a lot. I, you know, despite not making hardly anything, there was no appreciation at that time. In London, Ontario, you bought a house in 2012 and you didn't do anything to it. It was worth the same amount in 2013, 2014, 2015. There was like, you know, 2% appreciation. And I actually overpaid on my first house. I had a realtor talk me into it. You know, my girlfriend at the time, she loved the kitchen, the way things were set up. I overpaid for this house. It was cute as a button type house. You know, it was a solid brick house in a good area. And I did overpay a little bit for it. Um, I could have got a better deal if I was a, a better negotiator and knew what I knew now. So I guess to circle back to your question, right? In this, this reflecting time, and that's really what financial planning should be, right? Is like, hey, what have I done to get to here? What does that make? Like, how does that align with my goals? And then where do I want to go? So it's all about analyzing the current state, analyzing some of the past that got you to the current state, and then what changes are you gonna make in the future? And so one of those pieces, I think you talk about stock investing, I think that stock investing is fantastic from a diversity perspective. I'll use it that way. It performs, like, you know, if you have a nice stock portfolio, it will perform on average at a lower risk level than a real estate portfolio because your real estate portfolio doesn't have diversification built into it in the same way. You can have a lot of properties, you can spread your risk out across several properties, but you're in one sector. You're in real estate. And you're in real estate and say, for me, it mostly was in London, Ontario. So I'm mostly in London, Ontario real estate. That's one tiny sector of real estate 
inside of Ontario, inside of Canada, very, very limited. If a bomb goes off and there's nuclear radiation in the water or something, like imagine the water supply is affected, and all the houses are with zero in London. Guess what? I've lost everything. My, I was not diversified. So diversity is key. It's a big piece of a you know, resilient financial plan, one that you could rely on retiring on for 70 or 80 years. And so I think that that's a big piece of it. Um, Ryan says, haircut's looking sharp, brother, happy to see you on. Thank you, appreciate that, Ryan. Um, cut myself, so it's not perfect. It's not, uh, <laughs> it's not entirely even, but uh, for a pair of scissors, on the top I did scissors and on the sides I just took a shaver. I'm not overly, uh, I'm not gonna be overly hard on myself or pessimistic on my own viewpoint when it comes to cutting my own hair, but I will say that uh, it saved me 30 minutes each way driving to the hairdresser and it saved me the time of sitting in the hairdresser with a mask on apparently. I called the hairdresser and they're like, yeah, you gotta wear a mask. I'm like, oh, that sounds, to, to wear a mask while I'm getting my hair cut and like, there's hairs falling everywhere and you're breathing that in, it didn't sound like a very enjoyable experience. So it would have been like almost a good afternoon of my time to get my hair cut. And I was like, geez, in 20 minutes, I can cut my own hair in my bathroom. So I did that. Um, and it, forget the money. Like money aside, I saved myself 25 bucks on the haircut or 30 bucks. But money aside, I saved time. And I'm all about being frugal with my time, not so much my money. I, I've actually, I'm actually considering next time hiring a barber to come to my house and cut our hair. And if there's a couple of hairs to cut at once, it would make sense for the barber to come. Um, so as frugal as you guys know that I am, I'm more frugal with my time now. And that comes, you know, full circle from where I started. And I think that that's, again, something that I've learned as my net worth has grown, that my time has become more valuable. Now, if I was broke tomorrow and I lost the value of everything I've built, my time wouldn't be valuable anymore. And I would go back to being frugal until I built up a net worth. Then I could have the, I guess, the luxury or the election to choose to be that way. Because um, I think in the beginning of your journey, you don't have the luxury of being, you know, just to spend, you know, all your money, right? So that's that's one thing too. I think you got to earn that right to be, you know, luxurious or to, to spend, you know, kind of crazily. And I think that's the problem in our society today, and part of why, you know, something like eighty or ninety percent of millennials have very little savings, and they're actually not on track with their, you know, predecessors, with the, you know, the generation before and before that. We're, we're just not doing a good job. Now, I'm, I'm doing a fantastic job. Some people in my, my social circle are you know, top 1% doing very, very well. And by the way, top 1% is actually not that hard to achieve. If you're, like, if you're in your 20s and your net worth is over like $100,000, I had the stats somewhere, I could dig them up, but as soon as you have a six, small six-figure net worth in your 20s, like $100,000, you're like top 1% for your age category. So that means like most people in their 20s have like no net worth, zero or negative. So if you're positive, you're already in the top. And then to stay on that track till you're like 70 results in like a 10 or $20 million net worth. So you just gotta stay in the top 1%, which is actually not that hard. If you start young, staying in that top 1% is not hard. If you, you know, all that requires is like, you go work a full-time job. You go invest like half of what you make. Live on like half your salary. It's not that hard to do. If you make 60 grand a year, live on 30. Pretty easy to do with a house hack. Um, so just, Easy steps you can take to stay in the top 1%. Just don't make the dumb decisions people make in their teenage years and 20s, and you'll be super set later on. And that's the best financial advice I can give anyone is, and we got this advice when we got married, was a lot of, uh, you know, some of the elders said to us, things we wish we would have done is live on one partner's income and save the other person's income. If you're getting married, that's the best financial advice. Every time friends get married, I recommend the exact same thing. I say, look, take half of, you know, take if your partners make the same amount of money, 
Save, save one partner's money, live on the other. And if one partner makes less than the other, learn to live on the salary of the lower partner. If one partner makes 25 grand a year, find a way to live on that. If the other partner makes 80, save all of it and find a way to live on the lower partner's salary. You'd be surprised how far you can get with less. People live on minimum wage all the time and people are thriving on that if they know how to, you know, there's tons of blogs out there you can follow people living on, uh, look at early retirement extremes, Jacob Lundfisker, the, the guy lives on, uh, him and his wife live on 14,000 a year, 7,000 each. They live in a nice house in Chicago. Um, you know, you can have a nice, before that they had a nice apartment before they decided to buy, but you can live a, a good life by embracing the things that don't cost a lot of money, like, you know, quality time with friends and family, going for hikes, going for walks, you know, there's lots of things you can do. You can even have a pet as an example, or you can invest your time, you know, playing video games or watching TV or reading books, or there's tons of stuff you can do. There's, the library offers free activities. Um, there's so many things you can do in this world that are fun, fulfilling, and don't cost a lot of money. And then if you do that for a while, you end up in the top 1%, and you can do whatever you want for the rest of your life. Um, so you can literally have anything you want in your life, even if you make minimum wage. That's the power of a good financial plan, being prudent early on and letting time, you know, compound interest, the eighth wonder of the world, as Albert Einstein said, uh, work in your, in your favor. And so, yeah, uh, to circle way back, to that question of like, how could I have been more efficient? The answer is, I would still have done real estate, but I would have done it differently. So real estate, when I started out, was designed not for appreciation, but designed to use leverage to get extraordinary returns. I could buy an asset and have full control over it in a way that I couldn't with a stock. And at the time, I would have been just as happy to buy companies, private companies, and turn them around in the same way. But no bank was willing at that time to lend me to buy companies. There are people willing to lend me to buy real estate. I go buy a $200,000 rental property and I could put up you know, 20%, $40,000, the bank puts up 160, I got a $200,000 property, I renovate it, it's worth 300, 350 after I finish my renovation. Now I've just made a $100,000 lift on my $40,000 down payment, that's a two, 300% return and I could do that again and again and again. I sort of discovered the Burr method in 2012 before it was you know, largely talked about and there, there were no really bigger pockets or forums to discuss this. And there was no local meetup groups that I knew of. I'm sure they existed, but I hadn't found any, right? And it's one of those things where like in hindsight, real estate was, and I started out too slow probably. One of the, the biggest regrets is that I took so long between my first and second properties and second and third property. Like there were years between that, right? And then I started accelerating and getting really fast. And the mistake that I made in 2018 was going into business with a partner. That was the first thing. And I split everything, all of our JVs 50-50. So let's say I did a JV where I was 30% ownership and the investor brought the capital at 70%. I worked for 15% of the deal. So 15 went to my partner, 15 went to me. And I did lion's share of the work. So that was the, mis the first mistake was that and ended up being a nasty mess. That was one of the biggest regrets I ever had was joint venture partnering. Um, but two was joint venture partnering and then joint venturing my share of the joint venture partnership. Again, huge mistake. Going to business, you want to have control and that's smart and have an exit strategy. Again, very, very smart. Wish I would have done that. Uh, and the other thing too is when you're joint venturing, making sure you craft them properly. I joint venture agreements that, you know, I'm still fighting for today, fighting for my right to the properties. I didn't go untitled. So a lot of the things that I did when I expanded and did like 50 properties in one year, you guys know in 2018, 2019, I went crazy and did a whole bunch of deals. And I did way too much too fast. And if I had just, you know, instead of joint venture partnering, if I had found like one or two, I probably could have found one wealthy partner and said, hey, here's my plan, you know, back me at two million bucks in capital and I will recycle your capital, double your money over a you know, two, three year plan. Here's my business plan. Here's the 18 properties I did it with myself 
Now I'm gonna do it with your money. Because I had already, in 2018, I had a proven history. And I went to investors and said, look, I've done this with 20 properties, I wanna do it with another 50. And so I had a good business case I could've made. Instead, I made it to like 25 different people. And I tried to help all these people reach fire and it was, I was doing it to help people. People who had less net worth than myself. I should've found a business partner that was wealthier than I was, who had a lot of capital and concentrated my effort with one or two business partners and really exploded and found like them set up a structure where I said, hey, you set up the first secured mortgage on this property, you fund this deal, you're a debt partner. I will pay you 10% interest and they'll get a 10%, 12% fixed return. If I default, take the property. You can have my down payment. If I'm wrong, you take, I'll put some skin in the game, I'll put the down payment up and if I'm wrong, you keep the property. But if I'm right, I get like 90% of all the profit because they're structured as debt. Again, a huge thing I wish I would have done because the power of leverage in a flat, and by the way, we know that in 2017, London real estate went like boom, all the way till you know this year in 2020, from June till now we've had like, or even from, from the lows of COVID in March to now, we're up like 20% uh, in one year. So $300,000 houses on average now, 360. $200,000 houses on average, like 240, 250, that kind of growth. And in some, some price segments, even more growth than that in one year. So again, I've been extremely lucky. And I actually walked away from a lot of my partnerships bef like slightly before COVID. And I missed out on seven figures, likely in appreciation by walking away from a lot of the deals and getting out of a lot of joint venture partnerships, which is okay. Yeah, I'm not complaining. It is what it is. It's a learning. You can't time the market and you should never try to. But my point being that, you know, back then, I'm like looking back, I guess, eight years from when I started investing to now, I guess I started investing almost 10 years. Like I was stock trading, I guess, almost 10 years ago now. 10 years this November, um, I, was, I was stock trading. So I guess I started with stock trading and margin trading, and then I moved the funds that I had made from there. I was saving and investing and growing, and I was actively trading it and thought I was this hot shot that, you know, knew something special. I didn't. Um, you know, I'm not smarter than the market. Almost no one is. It's really hard to be smarter than the public markets. It's easy to be smart in mom and pop real estate. It's easy to be smart when you're buying private businesses because I'm competing against some dude who's 50 and he wants to buy the property and renovate it. And I, I can be much more crafty and intelligent, but I can't be smarter than the, the markets. It's a lot harder when you're competing against thousands of people. Real estate's a closed market where insider trading happens all the time. Granny puts her house up, real estate agent's lazy, doesn't do proper pictures. I go in, I see the property, I see something that's not listed on the open market, as I'd imagine. I'm looking at, last week, there was a property I noticed that had uh, four bathrooms, and it was listed as like two bathrooms. And so that's a mistake where the listing agent made a mistake, and that mistake in the public markets wouldn't happen. Like the accountant doesn't, isn't like, oh, revenue is actually eight million, not six million. Like there's checks and balances in place in that industry. In, in the financial markets, right? That those mistakes don't happen. Accountants don't just say, oops, revenue is half, I, I made a mistake. A real, a real estate agent makes mistakes all the time. They have bubblegum licenses and graduated from like a high school, right? A lot of the real estate agents are, are trash. And so you can take advantage of the fact that houses sell privately. Someone puts his house up on his lawn and wants $200,000 for it. These happen, these things happen. Um, I bought one earlier this year in London, Ontario for $180,000. It's a detached house, a 250 foot deep lot in East London here. Like it happens all the time. I bought a, we bought a, a triplex in St. Thomas, wholesale fee in for, I think it was like $180,000. It's gonna air every 400,000. That stuff happens all the time. The property needed help. It was in needing like $100,000 in capital to be renovated. It was in, it was distraught. But by adding some capital strategically and smartly, you can make a lot of money in the real estate market. 
and it's levered five to one. The banks will walk in and give you 80% loan to value all day on real estate. They live on the asset, not the person. And so it's more important that the asset is solid. And if I go to someone and say, hey, I have a property in London, Ontario for $180,000, almost everyone will fund that. They'll be like, is there, is it just land? Like, what are you getting for 180? I'm like, no, it's a full house. Like, go check it out. It needs some work, needs some rehabilitation. The ARV or after renovated value is like 350. I have a lot of margin here. It's not gonna cost me near that to renovate it. I could repeat that model again and again and again. It's something that, you know, I could exploit. It's the arbitrage model, right? That's, that's the beautiful thing about buying private businesses, about private lending and about real estate is when you're in control of the deal, you set the terms and you can create a model where you can basically scale to infinity with, you know, great returns. That's the beautiful thing from a financial planning perspective with real estate is the leverage. If you buy a property with an eight cap rate and you lever it up five to one and your cost of debt is 3%, right now you get 2% mortgages all day in Ontario. So 2% mortgage, right? You're, you're getting a, let's say an eight overall uh, rate of return. If you're five to one spread, it means you have a 6%, 8% is your return on asset. Your, your property is generating, if you bought it in cash, it'd be an 8% return. But we don't buy in cash with real estate. We're not that stupid. We're smart enough to lever up and we'll use 2% debt. So we'll put our money up for 20%, the bank will put 80% up, we're five to one levered at 2% cost of debt. You have a 6% six percent spread on every dollar the bank lends you, 6% spread. That's huge, right? If the bank lends you, in, in my example, I had at one point like three, four million dollars, I think in mortgages. When the bank hands you three, four million dollars at that kind of rate against you know properties, and you're getting 8% return from you know rental income or Airbnb or whatever. There's lots of styles. People do student rentals, people do Airbnb, people do, you know, there's lots of different ways to invest in real estate, right? People do commercial real estate, whatever it is. You just gotta run your numbers and say, look, my return on asset is high enough that the spread between what my property is returning and the cost of my debt is sufficient enough that if I have a vacancy or if something happens or rents fall, there's still a good margin here where I can make a profit. Where I don't think it makes sense to own real estate is in places like LA or places in like New York or Vancouver, where the spread between return on asset and cost of debt is like here. That's scary. That's when leverage is, that's when debt is bad. And so debt is bad when you're buying assets that aren't solid. When you're buying assets that are, you, you don't care about this because you're only focused on the appreciation pie over here. You're not focused on the cash flow pie over here. And so I think it's important to look at all the different facets and ways you can make money in real estate. But by the way, you could buy in LA undervalued assets there to uh, real estate and you know flip it and, and make a huge return on investment too. So there's nothing wrong with investing in those markets. But if you're gonna hold, I wouldn't be holding real estate in you know LA or Vancouver or New York or any large metropolitan area because what you find is the increased competition results in decreased uh, return on asset to price, right? The price just goes up and the rents are relatively stable. And so you'll get a price set to the point where return on asset doesn't make sense. And that's where real estate isn't attractive. Or where I'm at right now, I'll give you guys an example. You guys know that I've been walking away from landlording. I'm done with that. I don't wanna be a landlord anymore. In the cases where I'm keeping a few of my select properties in my portfolio, I'm putting property management in place. I don't wanna deal with that. I don't have an interest in you know, managing tenants or fighting with tenants or having to call my social media and you know, attack me. It seems like this, there's an adversarial relationship between tenants and landlords. I don't know why that is, but, and not always, there are some tenants who are, who are cool. But it feels like there's an adversarial relationship and it's just not, just not productive. It's just not productive. As your net worth grows, you'll see that high net worth individuals don't manage their own rental properties. They just don't, it's a waste of their time. Once you get enough net worth, you should just invest your net worth smartly and remove your time 
from the equation. And so that's where I'm at now, is my time is the most valuable. And so to circle back to that first question, which has now fueled me for a good 20 minutes, the answer is, would I have gone with stocks? I think the answer is no, I still would have been with real estate, but I would have done it smarter. And diversity is important. I think that I've said this a bunch of times in the channel, but in the spirit of today's video being about financial planning, about financial understanding and crafting financial plans, I think the four main pillars or categories that when I write my book eventually I'll talk about are there are four main asset classes that the ultra wealthy, almost all the ultra wealthy have. And the first one is a private business. So they invest in some business where they have some sort of competitive edge and they own that private company. It's not a publicly traded company. Maybe eventually it becomes one, but it starts off as a private business. So investing in private businesses is smart. As an example, the medical company that I bought in Toronto was an example. Um, I own several businesses. I, own, I owned a range cleaning business. I owned a cleaning business at one point. I had a consulting business at one point. I had a property management business, which went down. I had a construction business, which like, I lost so much money in the construction business. Talk to me, Kevin, about losing money in the construction business. I don't know how to make money with a construction business. It's one of the hardest ones to do ethically. It's hard to make money ethically. You've got to either squeeze your trades guys or you got to squeeze your customer. Something suffers. It's so hard to make money in that business. It's the reason like it costs $7 to change a light bulb. There's just so much overhead. But private businesses is the first silo, which should have at least 20 to 25% of your net worth. And if you look at wealthy families and wealthy individuals in Canada and the United States, primarily made their money in private businesses. Now you could treat real estate as a private business if you built it like one, but I, I'm going to consider it a separate silo for the purposes of this conversation. But Private businesses, real estate, so owning rental properties, I think that's a key piece. Levered real estate investing is a, is a tangible hard asset which should be around a quarter of your entire financial plan, but not more than a quarter. I think if you're, all your financial plan is rental properties, it's flawed and it's lacking diversity. The next one is stock portfolio. I think it's very, very important to have a stock portfolio that is mixed equities across many different countries by exchange traded funds or by stocks in the United States, Canada, BRIC, right? Uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, emerging markets, all that kind of stuff. You wanna have a piece of all the different stocks and all the different markets, so you're diversified. If a bomb drops in the US, that's okay, because you if a war starts between China and the US, it's okay, you got some stocks you know, that will do well if China wins. You have some stocks that do well if the US wins, et cetera, and so forth. Hedge against all of that, build a stock portfolio that'll you know protect you, that's important. A lot of people would recommend bonds as an asset class. I hate bonds. I think bonds are a terrible return. In the last 10 years, they've done extremely poorly in this low interest rate environment. Bonds don't, they don't re return anything relative to the risk. It's just not, the risk to reward um, ratio just isn't worth it in my opinion. Instead of bonds as an asset class, I substitute the fourth pillar as private lending. And I'll be more specific. I like, I guess I'm over, I have an edge in real estate, so I'm over, I guess exposed to real estate and that's because I have a niche. But my fourth one is lending against real estate, so private mortgages. I will lend against businesses as well. Those are the two places. You can either lend to a person, a business, or against a property. That's the only thing you can really secure against. Um, and I prefer appreciating assets. So I like real estate because it appreciates and it's stable and it's consistent and you can take it if they don't pay. Um, whereas taking someone's business is hard. They run the business. They're a key component of the business. You take it from them you know, against their will and it won't go well for you. Their customers might desert you, but you take their property and the tenants don't care. You know, if you take the property, if it's a vacant property, there's tenants in it, they don't care. They're like, okay, you're a new landlord, cool. You can sell the property and liquidate and get cash. Um, so I lend against real estate, it's my favorite to lend against. And lending is fantastic. You can get an eight to 15% return depending on the terms and the risk you're willing to take. 
Um, you can't get an 8 to 15% return. Secured against real estate, 75 to 80% loan to value. So if the whole market crashes 20%, you've not lost a dollar. That's the kind of secure then you can do. And I think the risk to reward of finding mortgages 8 to 15%, now it takes a little bit of effort. It's not entirely passive. You have to have a network like I do. I can put a video out and have 10 people reach out to me who want help, want me to fund their flips, want me to fund their properties. And so I can find people, right? But I think that a big piece of it is that I can use my network. That is maybe why I like it as a fourth pillar. But those are the four pillars. I think a stock portfolio should be a quarter of your net worth. Investing in private local businesses, stocks, so investing in public equities across the world diversified, and then ideally uh, real estate, so rental property holdings. Those are the four categories. And for me, that means I have too much in the real estate category right now for my net worth. And so I'm shifting it, if you guys have noticed, into the other categories. I don't talk about it a lot, but I've been slowly selling off my properties, getting down, down, down. I think I'm, I'm definitely under 30 properties now. And I, I've acquired over 75. I was involved in over 75 properties as a joint venture partner in some way. Now, in some cases, I walked away from the deal and I got nothing. In some cases, it's been a whole hodgepodge of deals that I've done. But I've been involved in 90, not as a partner, but I've been involved in 75 as a partner. And so I've been involved in a lot of property transactions. And if I had just borrowed private money, I'd have triple net worth that I have today if I didn't get partners. So that's, that's a crazy thing to think about that I have more than triple my current net worth. And so that's, I guess, a, a regret in some ways, but you can't predict the future. And had the market gone down 20, 30% in real estate and had, you know, things went differently, I might be saying something else. I might be saying, either way, I think it's terrible. If your partners were to lose money, that'd be terrible too. So I don't know, but um, yeah. Okay, let's go down the next couple of questions here and we'll do some rapid fire for the financial planning hour. Zyrene says, hi Mike, how you doing? Parappa Param says, Hi Mike, what are your thoughts on dividend stock portfolios versus a growth stock portfolio? So that comes down to, I guess, your personal goals and preferences. If you're looking to retire right now and you need income to live on, then a dividend portfolio of stocks would be preferred. You could buy utility type stocks here in Canada that pay like Enbridge and all the major utility sectors that pay six, seven, eight percent dividends. Even the bank stocks are paying like 5% dividends right now, annual yield. So there's a great, you could build a nice diversified dividend portfolio with this tax preferred, the dividends are you know up to $50,000 a year in income. In Canada, if that's your only source of income, is tax-free. So you've got a couple, you can do $100,000 a year, $50,000 a person in tax-free uh, income using a dividend portfolio. It's a great way to retire early and pay no tax in Canada. Um, it's I don't know of any other system like Canada's that's, that incentivizes you to invest in Canadian companies that are eligible for dividends as much as, as Canada's. It's fantastic. Um, I did a video on that. You can check out the video. It's called, it's one of my more popular, it's my top 10 popular videos. It's how to, don't do it now for the live stream, but if you're watching the replay, go check it out. It's the, uh, how to make hundred thousand dollars a year. Another video in and of itself, because of private lending, you can lend out from your tax-free savings account, your TFSA on a second or third mortgage at 25, 30% and grow your TFSA to a million dollar limit really quick. And then you have a million bucks invested, earning you money tax-free and the government can't touch it. So there's some cool stuff you can do with your registered retirement savings account and your TFSA, which I'm not going to talk about in today's stream, but it's a big financial planning topic um, that I think is underserved and underserviced by the financial planning industry because their incentive is to sell you mutual funds and sell you insurance and sell you things. And they don't get paid anything to, to have you go do private lending with your funds. And most of them don't even know about it, to be honest. Most financial planners and even uh, accountants that I talk to don't even understand the nuances of how you could use structured private lending where you could do an 
you know, first mortgage at 2% using your own cash, and then supplement a third mortgage using your registered funds at 25% or something, and then grow your, your registered accounts really quick. And it's taking a risk, but you can mitigate that risk by managing the relationship and, and securing its real estate. Yeah, um, but that depends on your, your goals and whether you need cash now or whether you, you know, need cash five, 10 years from now. So I think maybe a mix of both would make sense. Um, the growth portfolios tend to have higher volatility too, right? So if you need access to that cash in the next few years, a growth portfolio might have returns that look like this, right? Or it would be more aggressive curve up, but probably something where like there's highs and lows, the volatility between the highs and lows is very high. Whereas in the dividend portfolio, you don't care about the appreciation, you're focused, or the capital appreciation on the stock, you're mostly focused on are they gonna pay a consistent dividend yield? And so you might have a consistent yield and you might need that to survive, right? To live on if you're early retiring. So it, it depends on your strategy and both can be great plays. I think a mixture of many different types of strategy, like the dogs of TSX is a great strategy I like. It's like a growth strategy where you're buying basically the crappiest stocks, the dogs that are most undervalued from a yield perspective and they tended to outperform the index. So that's a strategy called the dogs of the Dow or dogs of the TSX. You can go Google it and you can find out a list of all those high yielding companies that have been beat up in the last years. And you gotta do a stock screen to find out, hey, you know, did this, is this company underperforming because of something in the industry or something unrelated to the company? And so by investing in this company, am I gonna get a return? Is it going to return to the yields that were, it was at before? Is there a reason why it's depressed right now? And it's just a signal, right? The dogs of the TSX is like, hey, this is a watch list of companies you should invest further in. Okay. Shailen says, I have a quick question for today. Not on budgeting, sadly, but it was just on if you had a recommendation for a realtor or where to find a really good one for renting in Toronto. Um, good question. Private message me on Instagram and I'll, I'll shoot you someone who, who can help you out in Toronto. I don't want to publicly call them out, but I can give you a, a name. Chris, how you doing? Good to see you on. Rada Chris, good to see you on as well. Uh, Prophet says, finally made the switch to public mobile. The reward system is amazing. I used your code for the credit as well. Hey, thank you, appreciate that. Uh, for anyone who is switching over to public mobile, they are owned by TELUS. They use TELUS Tower to get TELUS's coverage and TELUS's great speed here in Canada. It also works in the United States and it's great for international texting. Their plans are by far the cheapest in Canada that I could find. I pay, now I've referred a few people, so my plan has gone from, I think 36 bucks a month down to 26 a month. And I get like six gigs of data, international texting, unlimited international calling from anywhere in the world, calling from China, calling from wherever. Investors do call me from the US, so I need that international texting and calling. And international, uh, unlimited in Canada, unlimited picture, video message, et cetera, so forth. And I'm paying like, again, dirt cheap, dirt cheap. You gotta bring your own phone. One of the disadvantages, I guess, is you gotta subsidize your own phone cost. But um, there's no plan that's, that's that affordable in Canada with that level of reliability in the boonies of Canada, right? Like there's coverage everywhere. It's not like one of those crappy, you know, Freedom Mobile or, you know, whatever those discount cell phone companies that has limited coverage. It's, they use Telus Towers. And so it's a fantastic um, cell phone service. So shameless plug for them because again, I love it. Even if you don't use my code, if you want to use my code, hit me up on Instagram and I'll, I'll give you me and my wife's public mobile code. We get a buck off a month. You get, I think 10 bucks or a couple gigs free data. It's worth the switch. Next one, Alex says, are you a CPA? No, no, I'm not. Do you recommend studying accounting or finance? Alex, I thought that the fastest way for me to grow out of poverty, I come from a single family uh, or a single mom parent family household. 
and my brother and I grew up not a lot. And I thought the fastest way to get out of poverty and to free myself of the endless grind and to beat the system was to learn business because I figured that was how the money system, like to study the money system. So I went to school with the intention to study the money system. And I was most interested in finance and accounting because that's the nuts and bolts of our financial system. There's a lot more than just finance and accounting, but I thought it was a good base to be investing in business, investing in the market, and just to get wealthy. My goal was like, I wanna to get to a level of wealth where I don't have to worry about money anymore. So I can take money out of the equation. And so that's what I went to university for was to, my, my four year um, stint, my, my stint at Retrievery School of Business was all about acquiring knowledge about how businesses run, how the money system works. And I think it's, it gives you a good upside, a good chance to succeed in life if you do study those kinds of things. But from a profession standpoint, I think it's a bit saturated and there's probably some good opportunities in computer science or in some other niche industries like being a plumber or electrician, you'll make more in your salary job than studying accounting and business. So it depends on what your goals are, I guess. If your goal is to invest in real estate, accounting might not be the best way to get there. Um, for me, it was just like a passion thing. I studied what I was most interested in, um, which was just happening business. And that's for me what worked. Now there's been no job I've ever had that I've enjoyed. That sounds terrible to say. And I've, I've worked at like KPMG, I've worked from, my, probably my favorite job I ever had was working at Tim Hortons when I was 16. I loved it, I worked 30 hours a week, even through school. I had a great crew of friends I was working with. It was, it was fun. Um, I don't know, it's probably my favorite job I've ever had. Didn't pay well, so it wasn't a career choice, but uh, I, I've had, you know, if you consider like what I'm doing now a job, I, I enjoy this more than I enjoy Tim Hortons though. So if you consider like managing my own portfolio of, of assets, uh, that's my favorite job. I like not having a boss. I've never liked having a boss. It's just, it just doesn't work for me. I do what I want when I want. I like to be in control. And so for me, there's just not been a job that really made sense. I've worked a bunch of jobs and I'm good at corporate suck out, but you know, I've proven that I can get promoted and do well in a corporate environment. But uh, it requires a lot of biting your tongue and you know, you need soft knee pads. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, Ryan says, uh, haircut looks good. Thanks, appreciate it. Zoe says, did you get any mentoring before your first deal? Like working with another investor for free or something along those lines or did you just start without thinking too much? So in some ways, and the answer is no, I didn't find a formal mentor. I didn't pay for any courses, nothing like that. I wished I had of in the free mentoring space. I don't believe in buying the courses. I'm not a big fan of courses. The only time it makes sense to pay for courses and education is when you have valuable time. Um, if your time is really valuable and you make 100 grand a year, go invest in the courses. If you make $20 an hour, $30 an hour, don't invest in courses because you're better just to learn through trial and error. I think it's a better way to go. You'll learn more faster, better. Not faster, but better. You'll have a better quality education through trial and error. But I wish I would have found a mentor. That's the best, because so many people waste their money on courses. They spend $10,000, $20,000 on these stupid courses and packages, and they don't take action on anything. They just like, hey, if I give this person $20,000, then they'll solve it for me and help me invest. And that's not what happens. The accountability is still on you to take action. And so I'm glad I didn't do those expensive courses. But I wish I would have found a mentor in my first deal because I learned through, you know, my, my girlfriend, now wife's parents at the time had a property, they were fixing it. Like they had a property that they'd fixed up. Her dad was pretty handy. So I'd helped him fix up his house a little bit. My dad had a couple of rental properties. He got divorced and lost everything in the divorce and ended up selling all his properties off. So I had experienced as a kid helping my dad like around rental properties. He would just leave me a lawnmower and be like, go cut the properties. When I was like 10, I would go cut, like four, he had like four or five properties. And I would cut all the grasses and 
I remember like learning a little bit through that in some ways, but my dad sort of had the experience of, like real estate sucks. You don't make money. Tenants destroy your property. He ended up owning real estate in an eight year period where there was no appreciation on it at all. And so I think he took losses or at least he told me as a kid, hey, real estate sucks, I took losses. I was forced to sell in a divorce and it didn't go well. And so he always told me that real estate wasn't, I guess he's like the poor dad. Um, he, he never told me the, the way to invest in real estate properly, but I liked when I ran the numbers that I could be in control of property and fix it up and add value that way. So I'm, I guess with my first property, I got a taste. I bought the first property because I wanted to have something I could have control over. I didn't want to be a tenant, I wanted to have a property that I could make my own, that I could have friends live in. And I, I ran the numbers and was like, hey, if I rented out these rooms, I could live for free. And so my goal wasn't to make a whole bunch of money in real estate, it was just, my first property was a trial and error. And it took me a couple of years before I was even ready to buy a second rental property. And even that one didn't go very well. Um, I learned a lot in, because I didn't have a mentor, I, I failed a lot. So yeah, I was a, a big old failure. And my story is one that took, I took a long time to grow as a real estate investor. I watched people in their first year accomplish more than I did, you know, in years and years of doing it. And not to say my, my strategy was any, you know, was terrible or anything. It's just, again, Zoe, I didn't have a mentor. And that's a, a regret. I wish I would have found a mentor early on and I would have found a mentor who understood the cash flow game, who really understood, um, you know, the real estate game. Cause I had a realtor who was pretty, who was all right, who I found after my first property but they were more of an appreciation investor. So they gave me some tips. Yeah, I've had mentors along the way. People that I've consulted who have helped me grow and learn. And every time I found someone who was doing something better than me, I would ask, like I would ask targeted questions to find out what they were doing better and then try to emulate and copy that. And then I would find someone else doing this piece of the real estate business better. And I would try to emulate and copy what they were doing and sort of built it myself um, for what I kind of investor I wanted to be. Evening, William, good to see you on. Happy Wednesday. Friendly white guy says, hey Mike, hey, how you doing? Ruta Chris says, how do you think COVID is going to affect the real estate market? Is it still a good time to buy? Well, we've seen how the interest rates as a result of COVID-19 have affected, um, <laughs> has affected the real estate market. In, here in London, we're up 20% um, return, like just on raw asset. So you know, if you bought a property last year and put 20% down, you've doubled your down payment. Every single person who bought a property before February in London has doubled their down payment if they put 20% down. That's how the market has affected to COVID, has reacted to COVID because interest rates have been pushed to all-time lows. We've never seen five-year mortgages at 1.49. We're seeing that now here in Ontario and Canada. It's ridiculous, the lowest interest rates in history. They are forcing interest rates the lowest they've ever been to stimulate and propagate the economy and it's working. Unfortunately, it's working too much with real estate. And so um, I wish I would have bought more. People were unsure during COVID. There were some really good deals I saw pop up. People sniped up some great multifamily properties when people were uneasy and unsure. The markets had all shut down. We didn't know what was going on during the heat of the shutdown. Um, there were some opportunities to be had. People would have made good money by investing during that time. I bought one property. One pro I dipped my toes on one property during COVID-19, I was like, I'll do a test, I'll buy something. It was a good deal and um, no regrets. But uh, I wish I would have bought more, I guess. That's how it goes with timing the market, right? You you can never time the market. You just, uh, you guess and um, you do an educated guess, that's all you can do. So is it a good time to still buy is the second part of your question, Ruta Chris? I don't know. Um, 
I could see how the market could soften. I could see how the economic indicators and current economic data we're seeing around unemployment and you know average incomes and things like that, it's trending not in a good direction. But immigration is opening back up again. Um, capital is coming back into the country again. Interest rates are at an all-time low, and there's no sign of them planning to increase. No one's planning to increase the the overnight lending rates, or the Bank of Canada has no not that I know of any intention to raise rates anytime soon. The market just hasn't like people haven't recovered from COVID. They're still feeling the losses in their businesses, right, and in their you know their jobs and et cetera, so forth. So I think um, I think we're gonna be pretty pretty stable for a little while. But I could see a crash at some point. We've had a lot of growth and it's been unsupported by any economic indicator except for interest rates being low. That's the only thing that's driving stuff up. So if interest rates were to rise, we'd see a proportional fall right now uh, by 20%. Now that said, markets like London and outer markets where I, I invest and live, a lot of people are now shifting how they work. People working from home. You had used to, used to have to live in the GTA to drive into work. Now we know, hey, you can actually be more productive working from home. And that's a new, so it's now socially acceptable to work from home. And so a lot of people left Toronto, sold their $2 million houses and were like, hell, I have so much equity, I can afford to buy a house in cash in London. And so London was driven and grew a lot too by, by people leaving the major metropolitans and moving to the smaller outlier areas. And so that's something that's, that's has an effect and, and will continue to have an effect. And so those two, two catalysts, I guess, interest rates, and the exodus from the major metropolitans of the working class, that, that's had an effect. So I think that'll continue to happen. And I don't know, I don't know um, where things will go. You can find a good cash flowing deal, that's the key. Find something that cash flows well, and if the market dips 10 or 20%, it's okay. You're, you're investing for cash flow. Life's too short. Live it, brother, and love it. Sounds good. It is true. There's uh, it's two heads to the coin, right? You know, you, you focus on your future self or do you focus on your present self? I think a mix or a balance of both is important. Your future self will thank you for focusing on that future self and for saving for the, for the rainy day. Chase says, I have a very secure and low-key full-time job with a lot of free time. What part-time gigs from home would you recommend getting into for side income? I was thinking mortgage agent. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a, whatever your passion aligns to. There's lots of things you can do from home. You can... You could be a mortgage agent, that's right. It's a good one, you don't have to show any properties, you just schedule an appraiser to go out, you talk to the clients, it's fantastic. I considered getting my mortgage uh, agent license, thought being a mortgage broker, I guess they call it. Um, and yeah, as a realtor, I still not consider being a mortgage broker, it can make sense. I can lend my own money without having a mortgage broker's license. So for me, I don't really need one, but I do have friends that reach out like, hey Mike, can you put me into a mortgage? Can you line that up for me, I'll pay you a fee. And so there's been those cases where I'm like, ah, it could make sense to have a mortgage license to do that. But um, the work to get the mortgage license, I'd have to look into it. It sounds like more studying, annoying. Could make sense for you though. You'd have the time to study because you have lots of free time from your job. Mario says, if you had to start today, what's the better option, equities or real estate? Mario, it depends. If you have a full-time job and access to debt, access to leverage, then I think there's nothing better than real estate from a return on investment perspective. But return on time, return on stress, return on energy are not good investments with real estate. You will be really stressed out. It will cost you a lot of time to execute on the burst strategy. It takes a lot of energy. So it's like a full-time job. You get great returns, but you're investing a lot of time. And so 
if you have the time or the willingness to invest the time, then real estate, leveraged real estate investing performs a better return than any other, I guess, only bar only to investing in private businesses. You can buy a private business and get a similar type of return by investing the time in that business and growing it. Those are the two um, that are, you know, my, uh, my preferences. But yeah, with stock investing, it's pretty passive. So that's nice. If you don't like real estate and you don't want to get involved, then that's a great way to get a good return. Roman says, what is your job? I am unemployed. <laughs> I manage my own portfolio of assets. And I do quite well. Spuddy says, most people waste all their money spending on crap and have almost nothing to show for it after decades of working. Spuddy, it's true. It's unfortunate. It's, it's sad. Uh, people just put a little bit away and they would have so much more. The value of a dollar saved is much more than a dollar spent, especially in the long term. William says, Mike, do you think abundance mentality as having choices similar to FI? Do you think of abundance mentality as having choices similar to FI? At what dollar value do you think most people hit this? Thank you. Yeah, William, I think the abundance mindset sort of should kick in for a person when they reach like a, a luxury fire type of net worth. So there's like, people know that in the fire spectrum, the financial independence, retire early spectrum, based on how much you need to spend to replicate said desired lifestyle. Lean fire is like retiring on 250 grand or 500 grand. And it slowly goes up to like a regular fire, which is like a million or two. And then three, four, five, five million plus is called lux fire or luxury fire. And that's the idea that like, at that level of financial independence, you have five million or more and you're in the lux fire category. Or even some people are in the lux fire category at three, four million. You can kind of argue you're in the lux fire category. Depends on your lifestyle, I guess, what you consider luxury. But the luxury fire category is when you have enough passive income that you could just spend whatever you basically whatever you want and have no like the abundance mindset effectively. So I think that tends to happen, yeah, around two and a half million or more. I think around five million for sure it really starts to kick in. It does depend too on the area you live in. So if you live in LA, you need more than if you live in say Sarnia, Ontario or London, Ontario, you don't need as much. Dollars go further in the smaller areas, smaller towns. So five million goes really far. If you live in a hick, hick town where the cost of everything is really low. Um, in London, for instance, the cost of groceries is cheaper than Toronto. The cost of restaurants, cost of real estate, everything's cheaper here. So it goes further. And uh, I, I think it's one of, those, one of those pieces that sort of I guess teach their own. Um, for me personally, I, I like the Lux Fire category. I've sort of evolved into that. Um, I think that, it, again, it depends on so many factors, where you live and all that kind of stuff too. But I like the abundance mindset and I, it's fantastic. I'm in a position now where I can choose to do whatever I want every day. And not only can I be abundance mindset focused from a time perspective, um, if I want to, I can spend a, a you know, egregious amounts of time on like writing a book or something silly like that, or you know, building a website or gaming. Um, but I can also do that with my money. And it's, it's like, hey, I've worked hard enough and I've earned this. And so for the first time I have to tell myself, hey, you can have these things, you deserve this. Ruben says, hi Mike, thanks for the good content and replying. No problem Ruben, help, happy to help Ruben. Friendly white guy. Yo Mike, what are you doing with that laundromat you bought in St. Thomas? I'm gonna sell it. Anyone wanna buy it? Anyone wanna manage it? We closed it down for COVID because I didn't wanna go empty the coin boxes and you have to manually um, close the store down every night. And the neighbors were super sad to close the laundromat down. So if anyone in St. Thomas wants to run my laundromat down there, uh, I would set up a profit sharing deal with you. Um, I would even lease the whole thing to you. You could have 
all the machines, the washers, the dryers, everything. I'll give you the business, put it in the corp, it's yours, pay me something, you know, set up a rent or something. Do a five year lease and you can rent it, you can have the business. Just pay me 500 bucks a month or something um, to cover the cost, utilities, and a little bit of rent. And it could be your business opportunity. I, I might sell the building. Um, we've, uh, we've turned it around, we're turning it around, and there's gonna be a really good exit on that property. And so um, it may end up being just a flip. Oliver says, $200,000 for a house where? Uh, in London, Ontario, you can still find it in the rougher areas of town, but um, lots of places you can find a $200,000 property. Now, it's gonna be below the average unless you're in like the Midwest of the United States. Like here in, in London, I guess an average detached house is $500,000, a bit more than that actually. And so for $200,000, you get a piece of junk detached house, like it's a bummy two bedroom or something, right? But um, yeah. Next question. I got a ghost in, guys. Holy crap. It's been an hour. Good evening, D. How too good to see you on as well. Buddy says index funds the way to go for stocks for sure. Totally agree. Unless you're in the high net worth category like I am and you have a large enough portfolio where you can buy enough individual stocks to create your own your own index fund. And that's sort of what I do. Um, and I actually have a guy who's tasked with doing that. Reason being is in the private banking high net worth space, they'll lend you back uh, a secure amount of credit on your stock portfolio. And so I can borrow back like 70% of every dollar I put into, you know, Bell or whatever, pick a company. I can borrow that back. And so for me, that's fantastic. Um, where I can borrow back and say three, 4% or something against my stock portfolio. And then I can take that money and lend it. Uh, it's just a no brainer for me to put it all in the stock portfolio and then borrow it out and lend it. Uh, borrow against my stock portfolio to fund my lending business. Instead of using my own cash, I'm using the bank's money to do my, you know, my lending business or my real estate businesses, whatever you want to use your money for. Mike speaking the truth right here. Thank you, appreciate that. Crypto says it's a hard asset. Yes, that is true, but real estate is tangible. You can physically touch it. It's hard to screw it up. Harry says, hello. Hello, Harry. Daniel says, why do you say you're a Canadian's youngest retiree when you're still working? Don't you just mean you're wealthy and don't need to work? In that case, what about Justin Bieber? He doesn't need to work either. <laughs> Very true. Uh, technically, the way I defined it was at the time I retired when I was 24, which was I guess end of 2016, I reached fire 2016 December and I quit the job, officially quit around February 2017 and I retired for a while. I did some traveling, I did some stuff where in 2017 I didn't do a lot of work at all, I just was sort of retired. I reached financial independence through the traditional path, like as in I subscribed to the fire movement, I reduced my expenses significantly and saved my way to early retirement. I didn't have a big windfall. I didn't, there's no magic appreciation. In 2016, London wasn't popping off. I was, I did it through hard work and saving and then living on the return from the passive income that I could create. And so there's lots of ways to, I guess, you could be financially independent. Uh, Justin Bieber's financially independent, I'm sure. And depending on his spending levels, I'm, I'm sure he's close. There are people who have $10 million net worths who spend two, $3 million a year. And so, they're like three years away from bankruptcy, right? If they stop working. And so just because you're rich doesn't necessarily mean that you're financially independent. It's relative to your passive income from not working and your spending levels. So that's, that's how you determine you're fully retired. But yeah, I did it starting with nothing and didn't have any major windfalls. And so that's the qualifiers. Like I didn't buy or sell any business. I didn't win the lottery. I didn't invest in Amazon and it blow up. I just, I didn't even have any 
you know, crazy returns. I just worked hard and saved what we earned. And so I did it the old fashioned way. I did it the way that's replicatable, that anyone could follow and do exactly what I did in a flat real estate market. And uh, yeah, that's, there you have it. That's why I called myself Canada's youngest because I couldn't find anyone else in the fire. Like there was a guy who was 31 and written a book. There was, you know, Jacob Lambesker, there was Mr. My Mustache, all those guys who were like young, early retirees. They weren't the youngest. And there was no one in the space at the time in 2016 that was as young as me. And so I took the title and no one's, you know, taken it from me yet. I'm sure there's people who have, you know, sold businesses or whatever and, and got it, but um, yeah. It's a, it's a useless title now. Like I don't, I don't cling to it that hard anymore. David says, what do you think about buying a condo fully with cash and renting it out? I'm in Edmonton, Alberta. I don't buy anything in cash when it comes to real estate. The return on asset is not high enough only in cash. The return you're going to get, if you took the cash you're going to spend on the condo, let's say the condo is $500,000 in Edmonton. You could do a first mortgage lending secured against that same condo to someone else, 70% loan to value. They put the down payment up. And let's say they paid you a 10%, 12% return. You make $5,000 a month net net in your pocket. If you go put $500,000 into a condo, you're going to make like 500 bucks without a mortgage, right? Something like that. Like a lot less, considerably like 10 times more money from, or not 10 times, but several times more money doing the lending than owning the real estate. And so when you got all that equity in your real estate portfolio, it doesn't make sense to own real estate. It makes sense to lend against real estate and to make more. What is your strategy? What type of rental value add to a distressed property? There are lots of strategies that I've used over the years, but the primary one that's done the best is, yeah, just adding value through renovation. Um, that is, the, you find a property that's a single family and you add through an addition or through a renovation of a basement or something, you add a unit and that's, that's the goal. Uh, how do I learn about structuring good private lending deals and know what to look for? In other words, how do I become educated in space? Good question. Read a lot of stuff, Alex, on the topic. I'll make another video. I've done a video already on it. Alex, check out my video that I did on private lending. It's a good 50 minutes or so of me talking about how to qualify someone and what to look for. Uh, but I could do another video on how to do a lending contract. I'm not by any means an expert, but I could do a video um, or bring an expert on and, and have them share that would be something that would be valuable, I think, for people in, in sharing about the private lending space. There's not enough content out there about that, but go follow some mortgage agents. They'll, they'll give you some education on that. I'm sure there's a YouTuber, there must be a YouTuber out there who is also a mortgage agent who could walk through the nuances and depths of structuring promissory notes and you know private mortgages and you know when you agree to, to fund a deal and you send out a commitment letter, what does that commitment letter look like? And I have templates that I'm using and I'm by no means an expert, so. Uh, I should find someone who's a better expert than me and maybe does things better and I would learn something too. Okay, I gotta go. Um, people are throwing some stock picks here, some ETF picks they love. Um, uh, I agree with you about construction. There's so many here. Uh, thank you, I'll, I'll look forward to the message. If I missed your message and I didn't get to your question here, I'm sorry I missed a few of these. No problem, William, happy to help. Um, I can't give Canadian stock picks right now because that'll be an hour. Um, Luxfire seems like the life. It does. Do you have to? It seems like the ultimate. But I think Leanfire is better than working on a job. So there are levels of financial freedom and the ultimate one is Luxfire. Um, and you slowly work up. I think that under Luxfire is like a regular fire where you don't have to work a job, right? And there's different levels. 
Um, I gotta go though. I gotta go take my daughter into bed. We're past bedtime and I went too long. I've been trying to keep these streams to like 30 minutes, but tonight was a special one hour financial planning, financial advice, power hour. And so you guys are welcome to full free hour. Thank you all for watching. I appreciate the couple hundred people we've had tuning in and out. And for all the people watching the replay, thank you so much. Smash that like button for me and leave me a comment just letting me know you enjoyed the stream and got some value from it. And I'll see you guys all in my private messages on Instagram and especially in the comments on these videos. Please do me a favor and share this with someone who needs to see it. Uh, go ahead and share it on your social media. That would do me a favor and I would really appreciate that. So like, comment, share it. But uh, the secret to unlocking a wealthier you, there are three levers in the spirit of talking about financial independence and financial planning. Three levers to control your financial future. It's dead simple to build wealth. You gotta learn how to spend less, earn more, and maximize returns on the difference to build your wealth. So spend less, earn more, and maximize returns on the difference. Those are the three levers you have to play with. That's it, that's the whole, that's the game. That's, that's the, the mystery equation you gotta master to beat the game and live the life that you wanna live. Anyway, everyone, next time I'm gonna get a light so we can have some better lighting. I realize I'm actually in the shadows pretty much this entire stream, so my apologies for that. Um, thank you all so much for watching, and I'll see you on next week. Bye, everyone. At Mike Rosart on Instagram. See you there.